This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 9th, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, we have staff writer Paul Vusen. He talks about the OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu. OSIRIS-REx has been there since 2018 and will finally take a sample on October 20th, a few weeks away. What have we learned so far? We also hear from researcher Hubert Lim about a new treatment for tinnitus, what used to be called ringing in the ears. The team uses bimodal stimulation, playing sounds in the ear and buzzes on the tongue to change the brain and turn down the tinnitus. Now we have staff writer Paul Vusen. He wrote a story this week on a stack of papers published in Science and Science Advances on the OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu. Hi, Paul. Hello. Okay, on the podcast, we last checked in on the OSIRIS-REx mission in December 2019. The crafts had been orbiting and surveying this asteroid for quite a while, and some surprising things had popped out. For example, there are small ejection events, tiny rocks jumping off the asteroid, and surprisingly, big boulders littering its surface. And that's meant a change to plans for sampling from the asteroid. What's changed about that, Paul? Before the spacecraft reached Bennu, they had thought it would look like this kind of pebbly plain, like a beach was kind of the infamous term that (laughs) Dante Loretta, the PI, used. You know, you had all these boulders. It's kind of shocking. These boulders are a safety hazard, and there's no spot that reached the criteria for a safe approach mm-hmm. from the original plans. So they've had to reduce the area that they will sample by 10 times. Wow. So a much smaller sample area. They had to pick a site. They had to figure out if the craft could actually land there, but it hasn't happened yet. We're not there. Sampling is coming up in a few weeks, October 20th. In the meantime, we have this package of six papers. They tell a more detailed story of the asteroid's surface, its gravity, more about these boulders. What did you find particularly interesting in this, in this new information about the asteroid? One big question with 
sampling an asteroid and bringing it back to Earth is why are you spending $800 million to go get a sample when we have all this stuff on Earth? We have tons of meteorites on Earth. It's kind of a volunteer sample return. <laughs> these papers really show examples of several things that could be caught in these samples that you just wouldn't be able to learn from a meteorite. The thing that really stands out to me is the massive carbonate veins in these boulders. These are signs that the parent body, the kind of planetesimal that Bennu broke off from, once had this major water system flowing mm. through it. It was kind of an ancient water world. When you say veins, you mean there's just like, you know, what, what does that mean exactly? It's like this bright slash, linear slash of mineral that's deferring from the rest of the rock. It's different than the rock, and you think it's made of something that indicates water? Why? So these carbonates are known to, they form from water, from hot water. They mm -hmm. precipitate out. Without water, you just don't get them. So the same things are evidence of water on Mars as well. And it's not just a little pocket of water. It's like a little river of water? <laughs> yeah. So the, the idea is from meteorites, they had always thought, yeah, there's water on these asteroids, but there's only little tiny pockets that don't move around, you know couple of millimeters or something like that. But this is kind of showing that these likely had, at least the parent body of Bennu, had water flowing throughout the whole asteroid. And probably that meant a lot more water than one's thought. This definitely connects to the main point of this mission. What can we learn from asteroids that we can't learn from meteorites? But it also tells us something about the formation of the solar system then. Like what was going on way back when, when we had planetesimals running around? Yeah, there's a uh... There's also the story of the solar system, something that emerged even as OSIRIS-REx was launching. They realized that asteroids like Bennu probably formed beyond Jupiter and migrated all the way in. This is something that only emerged in meteorite studies the past decade, realizing that you have these two separate pools of asteroids. And these samples from Bennu might be able to actually say if that's true. Does finding this carbonate, these veins of carbonate, Support the idea that asteroids delivered water to Earth? Definitely. And this is a fairly well-accepted idea already, but this further bolsters that claim and provides in-situ remote sensate evidence of, hey, you know, these probably had a lot of water, so maybe this was one source mm -hmm. of the Earth's water. It's not going to definitively rule something out because who knows yeah, <laughs> something right. else out. Yeah. But it's definitely a major support for that. One sad bit of news here is the boulders aren't the exact target for sampling. OSIRIS-REx is not going to land on a boulder. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. But will it still be able to tell us more about these veins, more about water content, more about carbonates from the sampling that it can do? Yeah, so the this instrument that they used to detect this carbonate, first, that came from a close flyover mm -hmm. of the sampling site. Earlier surveys have shown that it's covered in carbonates or carbon-bearing molecules. So that could be like organic compounds, like amino acids, other stuff. Stuff that they expected to see, but there are signatures of that throughout the asteroid. So even the pebbles will have some stuff. We mentioned earlier that the parameters for where the sampling could happen changed once the craft had reached the asteroid. What are the risks here as we get closer to the date? Is there still big questions about whether this would be successful or, or how much it can get? Yeah, definitely. They've created this hazard map of the sampling site. It's not this kind of pure circle of green. There's a chance they come in to this red area that is hazardous, and then the spacecraft is doing this all autonomously, will wave itself off and kind of retreat back, assessing at five meters away. 
or there's the chance it does hit a boulder a little bit and skews. You know, it needs to press flat against the surface to be able to suck stuff up. So there's a chance that doesn't happen. They have the ability to assess and then try again at a backup site in January mm -hmm. if it doesn't work out. There is a chance that these boulders are very soft, but we don't want to find that out by landing something on them. You know, they're really curious why they got what Bennu would look like so wrong, what the surface would look like. One of these papers tries and figure that out, and it finds that a lot of these boulders are so porous that they're kind of fluffy. So they almost look like what a beach might look like in the uh, radar or infrared signal that they, they got of uh, Bennu. So that explains why they had this kind of signal suggesting a, a beach. The spacecraft could probably just crush these boulders if it rammed into them, but they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. That makes sense. So we'll know how much they got, but we're going to have to wait for the analysis for quite a bit. Yeah, it's due to arrive in 2023 in mm -hmm. Utah. We should mention why it's autonomously sampling. It's a near-Earth asteroid, but right now it's not near Earth, <laughs> and it's much farther than Mars from Earth right now. There's a, about an 18-minute lag between what happens there and what we'll hear. So all has to be done autonomously because of that. Oh, is there anything else you think we could learn from the sampling? There's the question of, were these one of the sources of life? This mm -hmm. kind of chemistry that was going on in the early solar system forming these organic molecules that then were delivered to Earth. Maybe there's some way of teasing out what this looks like before they're altered on impact with the Earth. Could be something that wholly surprising when you get those samples back. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Paul Vusin is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to his story and the related papers in Science and Science Advances at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Hubert Lim about a new way to treat tinnitus. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Today we're going to talk about tinnitus, sometimes called tinnitus. And this is the perception of a noise, either all the time or intermittently, this noise that isn't really there. And this is pretty common. About 10 to 15 percent of people have it. And it's not caused by any one thing. Could be some really loud noise injury to your ear, age-related deafness, which all in all makes this something that's really hard to treat. Hubert Lim and colleagues wrote about an approach to treating tinnitus this week in Science Translational Medicine. The technique is called bimodal neuromodulation, and it shows much promise in a clinical trial. Hi, Hubert. Hi, Sarah. Can you tell us how tinnitus works? It's something that could affect start at the ear or it could be in the brain. Is that correct? That is correct. And there's different types of tinnitus. But if you just want to simplify it to a kind of more objective where there's sounds actually being produced by your ear with that tinnitus or subjective 
tinnitus, and that is more believed to be happening in the brain. And so what we're talking about today is for subjective tinnitus, a sound being produced in your brain without actually any sound coming into your ears. And our approach is then to try to adjust the brain to reduce that sound. Can you tell from the outside when someone has subjective tinnitus? For the most part, no, there is no method to measure the tinnitus, the loudness and the tinnitus percept that the individual has. And that's one of the challenges of how do we actually measure and assess how treatments work. Can you tell through testing where along the auditory pathway this is originating? You know, is there a way to know which kind of person has? There isn't a way specifically to identify where along the auditory pathway. The community, we generally are realizing that uh, multiple brain regions are being involved uh, with the tinnitus perception, not only just auditory where you would think it would be. There's also non-auditory things like the emotional centers, limbic pathways, people call it, memory pathways. So there are a lot of regions involved. One thing you can do is you can assess the type of tinnitus that they have in terms of the sound quality or the sound perception. So you can ask them, first of all, you know, is it tonal-like or is it noise-like? Is it fluctuating? So you can get a sense of that aspect of it. You can also do some matching. You could play sounds. Even a tone generator, the individual can adjust the frequency of it, the loudness, and do their best to match it. Some individuals will have more complex sounds that are just not so easy to pinpoint. I actually have a few samples here. And if you don't like irritating noises, you might want to skip ahead a few seconds. We have one that's a tone and one that's more like a shushing noise. These are individual sounds, but some people actually hear a bunch of overlapping noises, right? That's correct. Before the approach we're going to talk about today, you know, the paper that you wrote, can you talk a little bit about how this was treated in the past? Tinnitus is interesting in that there has been so many different approaches that have been tried. Simple sound generators. You play music. It could be like a background noise generator. It could be more specific tailored sounds uh, for each individual. And those can cover up the tinnitus and or interact with the tinnitus to help reduce the burden on the individual. Currently, there is no clinically validated medical device or drug treatment for tinnitus The only clinically validated option right now, which is shown to be quite effective, is using more cognitive behavioral types approaches. One that is more well-known in our field is cognitive behavioral therapy to help a person deal with the tinnitus. And over time, then, the brain itself does adjust and adapt so that they truly do not, many of them are not even aware of their tinnitus anymore in certain conditions. Right. And that plasticity of the brain is kind of the target of what you're trying to do here. Let's talk bimodal neuromodulation. Big words, lots of syllables. Can you break it down for us? (laughs) Uh, And and it is. And and the word neuromodulation, a lot of that stems from the, the neural engineering, the neuromodulation world, placing electrodes into the brain for stimulating regions, for example, like Parkinson's disease, where people have tremors and they'll apply electrical current You could stimulate the cochlea auditory pathway for restoring hearing with cochlear implants or visual prosthetics. So, you know, a lot of that concept of kind of modulating or altering cell activity in your brain for restoring function, but also treating function. I mean, that's where this word neuromodulation stems from. We are trying to do something like that. We're doing it from a non-invasive approach. If you think about tinnitus as being coded in some neurons or cells in your brain, 
then the mm -hmm. idea is how do you disrupt that activity? How do you reduce that activity? And there's two ways to approach this. One is you can actually try to suppress or reduce, switch off those cells. The other way, which is what we're trying to do, is more try to make other cells more sensitive and more active. And in turn, you kind of make those tinnitus cells be not so important anymore because then the brain's like, hey, these other sounds, these other cells, these are more important. You do this with sound and electrical stimulation of the tongue. That's the bimodal part. We actually play a rich cohort of sounds in the treatment combined with tongue stimulation. We might play like one kilohertz and then we stimulate your tongue. And we know by pairing those two from animal experiments in my lab and other previous research that you can actually make more cells become aware or sensitive to one kilohertz and just activate more cells. And then you do it for yeah. eight kilohertz. Overall, as you keep doing this, you will start to make the brain more sensitive to lots of different sounds, which then distracts the brain away from the tinnitus. I'm going to play the treatment sound here. This one, I promise, will not be as annoying as the symptom sounds that we played before. So does that sound like a tone or does that sound like the beach or does it sound like music? One part of it is just tones. They're not exact, like very sharp tones. They have some kind of broadness to them in, in the sense that like it's multiple tones kind of mixed. But generally speaking, the most energy is in a given tone, like one kilohertz. That sound then will be presented for a short period of time. Depends on the stimulation condition we provide. But 80 milliseconds is how fast we do it. But the stimulus itself could be more like on the order of 20 milliseconds. So, so very short. From trial to trial, it changes frequencies. But with that, we have background sounds. And that background sound is more rich, broadband, wideband sound, noise-like sound. But it actually sounds a bit like music. It's adjusting with those tones to make everything more comfortable to listen to. I'm going to play just a little bit more of the treatment sound. Is there something about having a mixture of sounds that makes the brain pay attention? The key thing we're finding is it really is about the tone paired with the tongue stimulation that is uh, driving changes in the brain. Let's talk about why get the tongue involved. How are you stimulating the tongue? Does it taste like something? Does it feel like something? Generally speaking, there is no taste changes, but there is definitely a, a tingle sensation on the tongue, kind of equated to like very soft version of Pop Rocks. If people have ever had that when they're young, maybe not. Little fizzy, fizzy candy or soda and then kind of switches around in different locations on your tongue. It's a paddle-like looking device that is placed in your mouth, and we ask them to use it for about 30 minutes a session. At the same time as this audio that we were just talking about. Correct. The audio then is, is presented in a coordinated way with the tongue stimulation. For the study, we use three different stimulation settings. It's more about the timing of when the tongue stimulation happens relative to the sound. In one setting, we have them happen at the same time. In another setting, we have some offset between when the tongue is stimulated and the sound occurs. And then another setting is much more offset delay. Why get the tongue involved? What is that doing to signal to the brain, pay attention to this and forget about that other thing that's been annoying you for however long? There's been multiple groups that have been independently working on this, this approach. We ended up on the tongue through different pathways. My lab, we weren't sure which body region would be the most effective in driving changes. Hmm. We just know from many studies before that if you combine sound like pure tones with 
another non-auditory input. I mean, it doesn't even have to be somatosensory. It could be visual. It could be emotional pathways or descending memory pathways. But if you pair it, you can cause these changes. So we just did a trial and error approach. We stimulated all over the body, the tongue, the ears, (laughs) the neck, the back, the legs, you name it. What we found was that electrical stimulation of the ear or the tongue appeared to be the strongest drivers of plasticity or changes in the brain that we believed were relevant for tinnitus treatment. In parallel, Neuromod devices, they were interested in the tongue and they had more a systematic approach and they came across my paper and then it was like, oh my goodness, we both found similar things. (laughs) Why don't we team up? And the rest is history. You tested this on a, a large group of patients. Can you talk a little bit about who your patients were and how much of this treatment did they get? We tried to keep it as open as possible. We were looking for adults who are 18 or older and those who have subjective tinnitus, and we call it chronic. We basically define it as having tinnitus for at least three months and up to five years. We did some questionnaires for assessing the burden level of the tinnitus. For the most part, there there were quite a broad range of individuals that were recruited to the study. You mentioned that the tongue stimulation was 30 minutes and they had the ear, the sound going on at the same time. How often did they do that and, and for how many days? We recommended that they use the device one hour per day. That one hour could be broken up into two sessions of 30 minutes each for 12 weeks. And after treatment, were there any changes and what did you see? You know, it would be nice to have more reliable, objective measures to characterize the loudness of the tinnitus. There are some approaches that people are looking into and using. I'm one of the people who believe that questionnaires are more useful. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm more interested in is, you know, are you feeling better? And has your symptom severity, your reaction to it, your emotional, your functional reaction to the tinnitus, has that gone down? And so that's why for us, we use tinnitus handicap inventory is one of them that's the most widely used. And so there is another one called tinnitus functional index. And, and that also is beginning to be more widely used. And how did the patients fare? We had 326 participants in the study. In terms of those returning back, we had more than 80% of individuals Mm -hmm. coming back. 86.2% showed improvement on tinnitus handicap inventory, THI. And then we had 81.2% that showed improvement on the tinnitus functional index. And and the part I didn't mention, which I think is the the most encouraging uh, and hasn't been shown in previous studies, the long-term benefit is that we took the device back after 12 weeks This is the part I did not anticipate would happen. I thought that it would recover back after a few weeks or a few months, but we had a large number of individuals who out to 12 months still had these improvements. Can this approach by modal neuromodulation be used on other disorders where neuropathways are acting up? I'm not sure I know of an exact parallel case. I mean, could it be like migraines or seizures or things like that? Without sounding too alternative (laughs) medicine-like, my view has always been, even deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's tremor. You know, it's a complicated network and you have these tremors. Somehow you electrically stimulate the brain and then the tremors suppress. It's not that you're recovering or restoring the complex pattern that was lost somehow. You're almost kind of shifting things and letting the body do what it does best to get it to a stable state. And in the same way with tinnitus, we're providing all these many different inputs but we're really relying on the brain, the body itself, 
to find its happy medium to use this information and then get out of this abnormal pattern driving the tinnitus or the, the tension to the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. And so I think many other neurological and psychiatric conditions can be viewed this way. So if that's the case, then you can use different types of inputs to interact with the circuits that are driving those conditions. What are the next steps to get this type of treatment into use in the clinic? It is already available in Europe, in Ireland, and also Germany. And so we do hope that soon we can bring it also to the U.S. Do you know what happened to these people? (laughs) Do you know what is different for them? I mean, you know their symptoms are, the sensation is different. Do you know what happened in their brain? That is the question I'm so interested in. We have a second study. We were able to kind of go down that route, that question you asked. We are analyzing all that data still. And, you know, hopefully in a year we can publish that. I feel like what we're doing here is we're just opening the doors to this new approach. And I'm hoping that my lab, but other groups as well, will take on the challenge to really figure out, you know, what's going on in the brain. Thank you so much, Hubert. Well, thank you, Sarah. It really is an honor to be interviewed here. Hubert Lim is an associate professor in the Departments of Biomedical Engineering and Otolaryngology at the University of Minnesota and Chief Scientific Officer at Neuromod Devices Limited. You can find a link to his Science Translational Medicine article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And a special thanks to the American Tinnitus Association for those tinnitus sound samples. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you can find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, Thanks for joining us.